Welcome back, listeners, and thank you for joining me for episode 14 of Crim de la Crime podcast. On the list this week is the state of Indiana, and according to worldpopulationreview.com, Indiana has 174 unsolved disappearances. As always, it's important to keep in mind that this is based off of actual known reported cases. It is possible the real number is higher than that. So grab your wine and let's dive in to a little Indiana true crime. If you follow me on social media, you've seen me post time and time again about one of my favorite podcasts in the world and two of my favorite people, Courtney and Patrick with Evil Pudding Podcast. I've shouted them out a couple times on the show before, but I have a special treat for you this week and I want to play their official trailer for you. Hi, I'm Courtney. And I'm Patrick. And this is our true crime podcast. Evil Pudding. We are a husband and wife duo. I'm ex-military and law enforcement. And I'm a true crime professional fanatic. And we will together (laughs) will cover the most depraved and most shocking offenders and events that you probably have ever heard of. That's right. Only the most evil are covered here. So join us once a week. As we serve up some evil pudding. So once again, that is Courtney and Patrick with Evil Pudding Podcast. Go check them out on any platform you listen to your favorite podcast, and make sure you go follow them on Instagram at Evil Pudding Podcast. Before I dive into the show, if you've ever listened to an episode of Creme de la Crime, you know that how to pronounce names correctly is very important to me. I spend a lot of time listening to videos, looking up how to pronounce.com, making sure that I'm saying these names and places correctly. And it's very frustrating when I find conflicting ways of saying names and there's no way to confirm for sure which one was correct for a particular person. This mostly happens to me in the cold cases I look into because there wasn't news media, you know, television reports and stuff going on at that time. So for this particular little girl today, I did find conflicting ways of how to pronounce her last name depending on the area of Mexico she was from. But this story is about Anna Marie Arguello. And this story is tragic and my youngest missing child case to date. There isn't a lot of background on Anna, mainly because she was only two years old when she was reportedly murdered. The exact date of her death and disappearance are unknown, making this case particularly strange because it wasn't reported until 25 years later when Anna's sister, Margarita, came forward with this story in September of 1992. Margarita could only remember that the events leading up to the tragic death of Anna took place in either 1969 or early 1970. I'm going to give you all of the available details of the events that took place, 
But I also want to note that all information regarding this case came from Anna's two sisters' testimonies at trial. Her sisters' names are Margarita and Guadalupe, and they were there the night Anna was murdered by their mother. When Anna's birth certificate was later found, it stated that Anna's date of birth was September 12, 1967, and she had been born in Michigan. This is where the Vega family had lived prior to moving to Indiana, and a quick note, Anna and me share the same birthday, making this case especially close to my heart for my fellow Virgo child. So the main question everyone has about this case is how could no one notice that a little girl had disappeared for over two decades? It was stated that the Vegas led a very private life when they moved to Frankfurt, Indiana. Many believe this was because the head father figure of the family, Luis Vega, had come to the United States from Mexico illegally. Luis was not Anna's father, and it was reported that Anita's previous husband, Margarito Martinez Arguello, had actually fathered Anna. When charges were later brought on Anita, it was believed Anna's biological father was already deceased, and there really isn't any other information available about him. So one day in 1969 or 1970, Margarita Booth stayed home from school to help her mother take care of her younger siblings, and she ended up being forced to witness and partake in the brutal murder of her little sister, Anna. Margarita was nine years old at this time, and on this day in particular, she said her little sister Anna was in trouble with their mother because she had accidentally wet the bed. I can't imagine punishing a child for wetting the bed, much less a two-year-old. It's ridiculous to me, and if your patience is this thin, you just shouldn't have children or pets or another life in your care at all. And just a quick note, this story continues to get worse and worse from here. And I understand if some of you need to skip through some of this case. I don't usually provide trigger warnings because my podcast is about unsolved disappearances. So the entire show is pretty much a trigger warning. But this case is particularly brutal And I wanted to let all of you know in advance before I continue. As Anita proceeded to beat Anna for wetting the bed, she ordered Margarita to fill the bathtub with cold water. It was winter during this time, so it was already extremely cold. Margarita said she remembered running warm water instead, and her mother became furious, drained the tub, and made her start over. Margarita stated, quote, while I was running the water, she went in and started beating on Anna, end quote. Blood was running from Anna's nose and mouth at this point from the slaps she had taken from her mother. Anita continued to slap Anna as she tried to force Anna into the cold bath and Anna resisted. Margarita stated, quote, Anna shook her head no because she knew it was cold water. She told her to get in or she'd beat her some more, but Anna Marie kept shaking her head no. 
I said to Anna, please, please get into the tub, end quote. When Anita was finally able to get Anna into the tub, she forced her head under the water and held her there until Anna completely went limp and stopped fighting. Anita then ordered Margarita to keep the shower head with cold water spraying on her sister. The punishment went on over an extended period of time, and Anita would not allow Margarita to go check on Anna until the other children arrived home from school that afternoon. This is when Margarita found Anna face down in the water, not moving. It was reported that Anita told her children coming home from school that Anna had died that day and the funeral had already been completed. So the children just had to accept this and move on without asking any questions. Margarita pulled Anna from the water and said she tried to mimic rescue response efforts she had previously seen on TV. She said she did succeed in pushing some of the water out of Anna's body. She stated, quote, Water started coming out of her nose and mouth. I was scared. I thought she was dead because she wasn't moving or doing anything, and she was ice cold, end quote. And this makes me so sad to think about a nine-year-old little girl having to use her fight-or-flight instincts to save her two-year-old little sister when, I mean, you're nine years old and you really don't even know what's happening. And the image of her just trying to copy what she had seen on TV to save her sister, no nine-year-old should ever have to go through this type of trauma. Margarita ran into the living room to tell her mother that she thought Anna was dead. Anita ordered her to bring Anna's body to the living room floor, but quickly changed her mind and told her to instead leave the body on the enclosed, unheated back porch. Just another reminder, this is winter in Indiana, so it is freezing cold outside. Margarita did what she was told out of fear, but wrapped a blanket around Anna before leaving her on the back porch. She said Anna never did move again. Another sister named Guadalupe also testified that her mother had used the cold water punishment before after one of them had wet the bed or their clothing. Guadalupe was also there that day, and she stated there was a blue color to Anna like she was cold, end quote. I do want to note that Guadalupe originally lied to investigators and faced perjury charges because of it, but she did later end up confirming parts of Margarita's story at trial. After leaving Anna on the porch, Anita grabbed Margarita and stated, if you ever tell anyone, I'll kill you, and you've seen me do it so you know I can, end quote. Anita waited for her husband Luis to come home from work that evening, and Margarita testified that she saw her father carry a crate out of the house that had pieces of the army blanket hanging out of it that she knew she had wrapped around Anna. Quote, I looked at the box. I got scared because I knew I had covered Anna Marie with that army blanket. I don't know how I knew, but I knew she was in that box. End quote. 
Luis was gone for quite some time, to the point that Anita said something to him about taking so long when he got back home. Margarita remembered her father defending himself, saying that it was not easy to dig a grave in the frozen Indiana ground. Luis was never charged with any crime related to Anna, and he was actually murdered in the 1980s in Mexico before Anita was ever charged. Only family members knew about Anna's death or even her life. They never had a funeral for her, and there is a huge mystery surrounding where her body may be located. Decades went by and Margarita began having nightmares, to the point she said she would see Anna's blue face. One family member stated they believed she was buried along a railroad track in the areas of Clinton County and another reported that she might be buried on top of another grave in a cemetery in Frankfurt. Authorities later carried out an exhumation of this gravesite and found nothing related to Anna. Authorities even admitted that the only real proof Anna existed was the birth certificate they had found and one picture that was given to Margarita by her aunt. As far as her death, there wasn't really anything. Like I said, there had been no funeral and no death certificate was ever issued. Authorities didn't speak to Anita Vega until June of 1993 after connecting with surrounding law enforcement about the case. When she was interviewed the first time, they asked her what the name of all of her children were. When she named all of her children, but didn't include Anna, that's when the investigators asked about Anna Marie. Anita completely denied having a child by that name. And even after being presented with the birth certificate with her name listed as Anna's mother, she still continued to deny that Anna was her child. After extensive questioning, she finally admitted to having a child named Anna, but continued to deny ever beating or murdering her. Anita would go on to claim that after giving Anna Marie a shower, she found her unconscious near a space heater. She said she wrapped her in a blanket and laid her on the bed until Louise came home from work. By this time, she claims Anna had died, and it was Louise that didn't want to contact authorities because he was worried about being an illegal immigrant and thought he would be sent back to Mexico. I'm assuming Anita was here legally because all sources only make a specific note about Louise. Anita stated he put Anna in a box and took off walking towards a field near railroad tracks close to the family home. Authorities didn't buy Anita's version of events and ended up charging her with involuntary manslaughter on October 5, 1993. I had also mentioned that Anita's daughter Guadalupe was being charged with perjury, so that was at this time, and she was held on three charges for the lies she told to investigators in regards to her mother. The exact dates of Anita's trial are not known publicly other than the fact that it took place sometime in 1994. The defense had two main arguments. The first being Luis being the one that didn't want to call the authorities. The second was that Margarita was accusing her mother because she claimed at one point Luis had molested her and Anita had not taken her side in the matter. 
So the defense tried to convince the jury that Margarita was accusing her mother of killing Anna out of spite. I do want to note that none of Anita's other children ever claimed Louise abused them and all claimed Anita was a wonderful mother. Even though defense attorneys attacked Margarita on the stand for waiting so long to come forward, authorities had the added bonus of a secretly recorded conversation between Margarita and her sister Guadalupe. This conversation detailed some of the parts of Anna's punishment that had taken place that day that Margarita had forgotten about. At the time of the trial, Margarita had nine other siblings that were still alive, and she stated all of her siblings alienated her for coming forward about their mother. Anita's defense attorney also attacked the testimony given by Guadalupe, saying that prosecutors had cut her a deal to say something bad about her mother in exchange for a plea agreement on the perjury charges. Guadalupe denied their claims and told the jurors that she had lied to investigators originally because, quote, I loved my mother, end quote. After the conviction of Anita, Margarita's other siblings initially disowned her from the family. Her sister, Mary Fickle, was quoted saying, I hope my ex-sister is happy. I feel sorry for her. I think she's mentally ill. You couldn't have asked for a better mother. End quote. When it came to Anna, Mary stated, quote, We knew she existed and we knew she had died. But we're the type of kids who don't always ask questions. Lupe was scared. She said what they wanted her to say because she wanted to stay out of trouble. She has three kids of her own. End quote. In 2014, Mary passed away and her mother and siblings were all listed as her surviving family, but Margarita was the only one not listed at all. She wasn't listed as a survivor or as preceding her in death. It was noted that Mary was born in September of 1968, so she would have also been an infant and would have been at the home that day. She was, of course, too young to have any recollections from that day. Even though the case was 25 years old at this point and there wasn't any evidence other than the testimonies of Margarita and Guadalupe, the jury came back with a guilty verdict after only 45 minutes. There isn't a lot available about Anita's sentencing other than an article stating she was given 1 to 10 years based on the laws that were in place in 1969 and 1970. Prosecutors objected to such a light sentence, but the judge's hands were tied because of the laws that were in place during the time the crime is said to have occurred. After the verdict was read, Anita Vega hugged friends and family before being escorted from the courtroom. Before exiting, she said, quote, I don't hold any grudges, end quote. There was an appeal filed in 1995 with the Indiana Court of Appeals, but it was denied, and the last update available on Anita was a cursory note that by January of 2000, she had, quote, recently been released from prison, end quote. So she served around five years for Anna's death. Three of Margarita's nine siblings had criminal records and served prison time. So here's what I was able to find regarding those charges. 
Luis Jr. was released from prison in the year 2000 after his second rape conviction. In 1989, Margarito Arguello Jr. was convicted on two counts of dealing cocaine, and he was sentenced to two sentences of 30 years. He was released in 2001. I do think it's ridiculous that he received a longer sentence than Luis Jr. did for two rape convictions. That just shows that our justice system in America has been broken for a very long time. And then there's Tony Arguello, and he has a few charges. In 1989, he was convicted of theft and resisting arrest. In 1992, he was convicted of child molestation and then convicted again for the same thing in 2017. These charges were in another county, and he was charged with six counts of child molestation. For his multiple offenses, he will spend the rest of his life in prison because the compilation of his charges lists his earliest release date as the year 2140. That's all the information that's available in this case. Anna's story messes with me because I can't wrap my brain around the fact that a two-year-old had to go through this and her other siblings had to witness and participate in it. This case is also confusing and frustrating because it's very rare that someone can be convicted so many years later on just a witness statement and hardly any evidence. We know Anna Marie existed because her birth certificate proves it. But there's a lot of speculation about Margarita's testimony and why she waited so long to come forward. But on the other hand, it's also hard for me to imagine someone lying about such a detailed, traumatic experience. And then to also be able to have another sibling talk about similar punishments and experiences with their mother. I'm definitely interested in all of your feedback on this case. And if you think Margarita was telling the truth about what happened that night. And do you think it's fair for Anita to be convicted without proof of a body? I personally do believe Margarita's version of events. She may have only been nine years old, but I have very vivid memories from my life at that age. So to me, it's not unrealistic for her to be able to recall such a traumatic experience in detail especially since she came forward after going through extensive therapy. Most times with severe trauma, your brain either blocks the memories out completely or you remember every small detail, even down to smells, tastes, sounds, etc. Anna Marie Arguello was last seen in her home in Frankfort, Indiana sometime in the winter of 1969 or 1970 when she was two years old. Police were unaware of Anna's disappearance until her sister Margarita came to them in the fall of 1992. Margarita stated that her mother Anita had severely beaten Anna, deprived her of food, forced her to take a bath in cold water, and held her head under the water until she drowned. Anita's stepfather Luis is said to have buried her body somewhere after he came home from work. Anna is a Native American little girl with dark brown hair and brown eyes. 
At the time of her disappearance, Anna had a full set of teeth, but her height and weight are unknown. She is assumed to be deceased, but her body has never been found. Her case is classified as endangered missing. If you have any information regarding the disappearance of Anna Marie Arguello, please contact the Clinton County Sheriff's Office at 765-659-6396. Disappearances are always eerie, but it's even weirder when multiple people disappear together and are never seen again. This is what happened in what is now referred to as the Indiana Dunes Mystery. This took place on Saturday, July 2nd, 1966. The story is about the disappearances of three best friends, Renee Brule, Ann Miller, and Patricia Blau. At the time they disappeared, Anne was 21, and Renee and Patricia were both 19. Renee and Patricia had been friends all through high school. The two met Anne when they were all three working at the stables where they kept their horses and immediately became the best of friends. It was stated that they regularly went riding together. It was a really hot day that summer weekend, So Anne got into her car and went to pick up Patricia and Renee. She picked up Patricia first at her family's home in Winchester, Illinois, around 8 a.m. Patricia had told her mother they planned to be back early in the evening because Renee said she needed to be back to make dinner for her husband. Anne and Patricia then went to pick up Renee from her home in West Fulton, which is on Chicago's west side. After picking up Patricia and Renee, the three began to drive to Indiana Dunes State Park. I GPS searched the distance from Chicago to this location, and it showed that it was only about a 45-minute to a one-hour drive, just depending on traffic. Ann and Patricia had visited the park the week before, and they had loved it so much they decided to take Renee. They made a quick stop to pick up some sunscreen along the way, and it was said that the three arrived to the beach around 10 a.m. Since it was a holiday weekend and also summer, the beach was packed with almost 9,000 visitors hanging out at the beach that day. There was a young couple by the names of Mike and Francis that had chosen their hangout spot on the beach beside the three friends, not knowing that they would actually become the key witnesses in their disappearances. It was stated the girls were having a good time that day. The couple later watched the three enter the water in their bathing suits, and after only being in the water for a short time, they noticed the three talking to a man on a boat before all three of them proceeded to board the boat with this man. The couple thought it was strange because the girls left on this boat, but they left behind all of their personal items on the beach. Hours went by and the sun was setting. So Mike and Francis began packing up to leave and realized the three women still had not returned. Their belongings were untouched, and among these items were a towel, a purse, sunscreen, cigarettes, car keys, money, and all of their clothing. So 
These are all important items that I feel like they would not have left behind if they weren't planning on coming back. The couple gathered the items and handed them in to a park ranger by the name of Bud Connor, while also letting him know they had seen the girls boarding a boat earlier during the day. You have to remember this is 1966, so it took two days before the rangers realized the items belonged to the three women reported missing from Chicago. I'm actually surprised it only took two days because of the time period and the fact that disappearances took place across state lines. But thankfully, Patricia's father had called the station looking for information about his daughter because remember Patricia had told her parents where they would be that Saturday. An important note here, this is why you should always share your location with someone you trust. Once Patricia's father let them know the girls were missing, the park superintendent remembered the items that had been handed in by Mike and Francis. He went through the items and noticed Anne's car keys and immediately tried to locate her vehicle. He ended up finding her four-door 1955 Buick in the parking lot, and after confirming it belonged to Anne, he called the police. Sergeant Edward Burke was put in charge of the investigation and he immediately went through the items that had been left on the beach, as well as questioned staff members of the park and the witnesses. Mike and Francis were able to describe the boat the girls had boarded in pretty good detail. They stated it was white with a blue interior and was around 16 to 18 feet long with an outboard motor. The man they were seen talking to was described as being a tan Caucasian male with dark hair, and they said he appeared to be in his 20s. A search of the surrounding beaches and the water itself was requested, and the search for the boat several days later resulted in no leads. The U.S. Coast Guard estimated that there were around 6,000 boats on the water that day, and this man could have fit the description of a lot of them because it was fairly vague. Because of the amount of visitors to the park that day and the days following, it made finding any evidence almost impossible. Anne's car was in the same spot it had been parked when they had arrived, and there was never any sign they had returned to the beach or the vehicle. One odd thing that was found among their possessions was inside Renee's purse. There was a note written by Renee dated from two weeks earlier, and it was directed to her husband, Jeffrey. The note stated she wanted to leave him, and this, of course, led authorities to want to speak to him. He stated they had no problems in their marriage as far as he knew, and Renee's family also said the letter was insignificant and that she had probably written it out of anger and decided not to give it to Jeffrey. On July 6th, only four days after they disappeared, another search of the shoreline was conducted. Searchers located debris from boat wreckage that had washed up approximately three miles from where the girls were last seen. The Coast Guard had no records of anyone reporting a missing boat, and an air patrol of the area was ordered. No further debris was discovered, and divers also failed to find any sign of further wreckage or of the women. Public appeals were made for information, and this did lead to a few sightings being called in from Michigan, Wisconsin, Illinois, and Indiana. None of these sightings could ever be confirmed. 
Authorities did receive one lead that was particularly helpful, and this came from an Indiana man who had been recording video on the beach that day around the time the girls were last seen. After going through the footage, two boats in particular caught the attention of police, one of them being the one described by the couple who had been beside them on the beach, and the second boat was a 26- to 28-foot cabin cruiser, and other witnesses had stated they had seen three women climb on board with three men. Multiple witnesses gave similar accounts. This series of events had taken place later in the day after the first couple had seen them board the first smaller boat. It has been over five decades, and no trace of Ann Miller, Renee Brule, or Patricia Blau has ever been found. So now that we've gone through the details of the disappearances and the search, I want to share the theories that have come forward over the decades since they disappeared. There are quite a few theories in this case, the first of which being that the first man in the smaller boat dropped the women back off on the beach before returning with his friends in the larger boat to pick them back up. This theory doesn't really make sense to me simply because if they would have been dropped back off at some point, I definitely think they would have went back to the beach to get their belongings if they were planning on going back out or leaving. Another theory is that they may have boarded one of these boats and been involved in some sort of boating accident that resulted in their deaths. But if this were the case, wouldn't more wreckage and the bodies of the individuals on board have been found? There was also no way for investigators to know how long that boat wreckage they found had been sitting on the shore, so there's no proof this wreckage was connected to any of the boats the girls may have boarded. The third theory is that the women possibly drowned. At one point, the park superintendent leaned strongly towards this theory because statistically more people drown at Lake Michigan each year than at any of the other Great Lakes in the United States. Being a good swimmer doesn't necessarily mean that you can't get caught in rip currents. But again, if this were the case, why were none of their bodies ever found? It seems unlikely that all three would never be recovered if it were a simple drowning situation. There's also a theory that seems a little out there to me, but I'm going to share it regardless. Stories came forward later that Anne had told friends she was three months pregnant, and others have also claimed that Patricia was pregnant as well. Both women had apparently claimed the fathers of their children were both married to other women. Abortion was illegal in Illinois during this time, and some people speculate that one of the women may have died receiving an illegal abortion, and the other two women were killed to cover it up. Once again, there is nothing to confirm this account or that both women were in fact pregnant. And why would you go to the beach to have an abortion even if you were doing it illegally? It doesn't really make sense to me. But it is interesting to note that there was a couple named Frank and Helen Largo that lived in the area and they were known for giving abortions to women in need. It was said that the couple ran this illegal abortion clinic actually on a boat out in the middle of the water. Their nephew Ralph Largo Jr. lived with the couple at this time and he matched the description of the man given by the couple. 
He also admitted to being on the beach that day. But there is literally not a single piece of evidence that points to this happening or Ralph being involved in any way. Another theory, and one that is always discussed when someone disappears, is that the three plan to disappear on purpose. During the investigation, Sergeant Burke learned that all three women had things going on in their personal lives. We've already talked about the letter that was found in Renee's purse about leaving her husband and Anne reportedly telling her friends she was three months pregnant by a married man. Anne had also apparently suggested at some point to a friend that she would have to enter a home for unwed mothers when the time came. Patricia had also told one of her friends that she was going to leave and that no one would find her. Apparently months prior to the disappearances, Patricia was seen with bruises on her face that had been given to her by the Horse Syndicate, and the Horse Syndicate was a criminal network made up of owners, riders, trainers, and veterinarians who killed horses to collect insurance money. People have speculated that the women had somehow become involved with this group and needed to leave. But again, from what witnesses had stated, it didn't seem like they knew the men they had been seen with. So why would they try to run away with random people? The items left on the beach and certain details of their lives at the time also make this theory highly unlikely. Renee had $55 in checks in her purse, which is a value of over $400 today, and Patricia had just recently won $900 at a race in Winnipeg with her horse, and she never ended up claiming those winnings at all. This winning is significant because that's actually over $7,000 in today's money. So why wouldn't the girls take this money with them if they were planning to disappear and start over? There was a man named Silas, and he was a known member of the horse syndicate, and the three women were all known to have horses at his half-brother George's stables. Silas and George were rivals, and in June of 1965, 22-year-old Cheryl Lynn Rood was murdered by a car bomb meant for George when she was moving his Cadillac for him. People stated that Anne, Renee, and Patricia had been eyewitnesses to this event and they were possibly killed by a hit put out on them by Silas. Silas did eventually serve prison time when he finally ordered the hit that killed George when he was shot through the heart on October 28, 1970. So there was no doubt he was capable of putting a hit out on the girls in 1966. It gets even weirder because Silas later allegedly made a confession to a local sheriff that three bodies were buried on his land. He never mentioned their names, but the sheriff took the claim seriously and began preparing to search the property. Before the search was scheduled to take place, the sheriff was killed in a farming accident, so the lead was dropped and the search never happened. I don't believe in coincidences, and I don't believe it's an accident that everyone connected to Silas ends up dead when they have any form of information about him. Silas had an associate named Ed, and Ed was a police officer who had been the go-to between hiring the hitman for Silas that shot George. The reason police paid particular attention to him was because several days after the girls were last seen, 
Ed filed an insurance claim notifying his insurance company that a boat he owned had been destroyed in an accidental fire. All of the details surrounding the horse syndicate, Silas, and Ed make it seem like this theory would make the most sense and why the women have never been found. But even though these are some shitty human beings, there still isn't really any evidence that can prove Silas or Ed was ever involved. It was also stated that it was unlikely Silas would have ordered a hit to take place on a busy, packed beach. So, that's all that's available or has ever been found in this case. It's completely bizarre to me that three grown women can disappear without a trace and never be found or heard from for over 50 years. The best case scenario is that they were able to leave and start over and lived out their lives together somewhere, but it just seems unlikely to me that three missing women could remain undetected and live under the radar without anyone recognizing them. Feel free to reach out and let me know what you think about this case. Renee Brule, Ann Miller, and Patricia Blau were last seen on July 2, 1966, at Indiana Dunes State Park in Indiana. There are multiple accounts of them being seen climbing on board of two different boats. Renee Brule was 19 years old when she disappeared and was last seen wearing a brown swimsuit with a pattern of green flowers and gold leaves on it. She is a Caucasian female with brown hair and hazel eyes. She was 5'9 and weighed somewhere between 120 to 150 pounds. Ann Miller was 21 years old when she disappeared and was last seen wearing a blue two-piece bathing suit with a red belt. She is a Caucasian female with brown hair and blue eyes. She was 5'2 and her weight at the time is unknown. It is possible that Ann was three months pregnant when she disappeared, but this has never been confirmed. Patricia Blau was 19 years old when she disappeared and was last seen wearing a bright yellow bikini with ruffles. She is a Caucasian female with brown hair and brown eyes. She was 5'4 and weighed around 115 pounds. She went by the nickname Patty. It is possible that Patricia was also pregnant at this time, but this has also never been confirmed. Their cases are classified as endangered missing. If you have any information regarding the disappearances of Renee Brule, Ann Miller, and Patricia Blau, please contact the Indiana State Police at 219-269-4747. That's all I have for episode 14. If any of my listeners have a loved one that went missing and has never been found and you would like their story discussed in a future episode, please reach out to me via email, crimedelacrimepodcast7 at gmail.com. And don't forget to head to Instagram at crimedelacrimepod and follow me there. As always, don't forget to keep your eyes and ears open out here. Until next week, this is Sam signing off.